You know, Dustin, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a Texas Ranger. Really? Yeah. What stopped you? Chuck Norris. You know, the whole Walker, Texas Ranger thing? Uh, I knew there was no way I could kick his ass. Really? Yeah. Well, you don't know karate. No, it's karate. Unagi. Right. Okay. We got Dr. Jody Edward Ginn on the show. We're going to talk about some real Texas Rangers. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Dustin Bass. And I'm Alan Joaquin. And we are the Sons of History. We've got a great guest on the show for you, Dr. Jody Edward Ginn, author, historian, uh, executive director of the Texas Ranger Heritage Center. Uh, really an all-around great guy, and he's going to be joining us to talk about his latest book, East Texas Troubles. Um, also, little-known fact among us girls, actually it's pretty well-known among us girls, uh, he was a historical consultant for the movie The Highwaymen with Kevin Costner, Woody Harrelson, and Kathy Bates. Freaking awesome. Kathy Bates. Yeah. You know, I'm not attracted to her, but she's a damn good actress. Oh, I love her. Yeah. I love her. Uh, was it Girls of the Devil or Women of the Devil or something? I don't know. I'm thinking Titanic, Misery. I'm thinking uh, Waterboy. Ah, yes, uh, the devil, the devil. <laughs> I forgot about that. How could you forget? Man, yeah, she was a good mama. <laughs> she, yeah. She's a good mama. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievable. All right, so we're going to have Dr. Jody Edward again on the show, but before we do, we've got great news, um, especially for you because my coffee has not been that stellar lately. No, I've had to dump all that cream into it just to make it taste good because it, it's, you know... And it really irritates me because you pretty much, it's like half cream, half coffee. And I, I hate it when you do that. But Can you blame me? I can't. But now you have zero excuse. I didn't, you know, when I made some coffee tonight, I didn't have to put that much cream. Yeah. You know why? Delicious. The Patriot Knife Coffee Company. Ladies and gentlemen, this is some delicious coffee. We've got the Texas Bourbon Pecan Coffee on this one. What did, you, what did you think about that? Like, honestly... Uh, listen, let me tell you this. If I could make cologne out of it, uh -huh. I would. Well, you know, with my allergies and all that, and I can barely smell or taste anything, I could taste the deliciousness of this coffee. Yeah, it was. <laughs> it was really good. So, look, check it out. Go to PatriotKnifeCoffee.com and go talk to my good friend Chris McLean. Or actually, don't even call him. Don't even text him. Just Order online, order yourself a bag of the numerous flavors that he's got. But this, this baby right here, Texas Bourbon Pecan. This is like, if you were to ever dream about coffee and have a, like a really good dream about coffee, this is what you'd be drinking. Ooh, bathing in coffee. There we go. Yeah. Hot coffee bag. Yeah, there you go. Can I have this? Yeah, oh, right. sure. Cool. Of right. course. My own coffee. All right, ladies and gentlemen, book and movie recommendation as we always do. Um, my book and movie recommendation is an obvious choice. This book is insane. East Texas Troubles by Dr. Jody Edward Ginn. This is a story about what is going on in the 30s. <clears throat> um, 
in San Augustine, Texas, little town in East Texas. And what's interesting is uh, it sort of hits a little close to home because my father more or less, more or less grew up in that area. Uh, he grew up in Hemphill, Texas, which is pretty much uh, right next to San Augustine. Mm-hmm. And uh, so his dad was alive during this time. His his dad was probably you know a young man uh, in the 30s. Um, and it's, it, it is wild. It's one of those things where it's like a shoot 'em up movie or book. And it's like, none of this can be real. And it's freaking real. It is, it is wild. The stuff that was going on, uh, during this time. And Dr. Jody Edward again does a great job of writing about the chaos that ensued, um, the San Augustine area and how the Rangers were being, utilized in a very corrupt way by the Ferguson uh, regime, the governor, uh, Ma and Paul Ferguson. And then James Allred comes in and sets, sort of just sets the record straight with that area and also um, the Texas Rangers. Sounds like the Elliot Ness of the era. Yeah. Or Texas, I should say, because he was of that era anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but great book, ladies and gentlemen. Check it out. My movie recommendation is The Highwaymen. Have you, did you see that? No, I don't have Netflix. That's I tried right. to buy it online, uh, Amazon, Blu-ray, couldn't find it. Can't do it. It's really good. It's about the chase, um, Texas Rangers chasing um, after Bonnie and Clyde. They do a great job. Uh, I think it was John Lee Hancock, uh, the Texas native. Uh, I think he's out in, he grew up in League City, Texas. He's the one who directed uh, the movie. And actually, our upcoming guest, Dr. Jody Edward Ginn, was a historical consultant for Netflix on this movie. Interesting. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, go check it out, especially if you have Netflix. Well, speaking of Dr. Jody Edward Ginn, I've got um, his other book called Palmetto Ranch, and it's about the last, well, it's about the Palmetto Ranch area and, and how it became a national landmark. And <clears throat> there were two battles that were fought there during the Civil War. And uh, the second one was actually like the last land battle. In the uh, Civil War. Mm-hmm. Everyone says, oh, you know, when Lee surrendered, uh, that that was the end of the war. It wasn't. That wasn't the case. So, no. Yeah. So, if you want to get a book about, you know, the last battle of the Civil War and, you know, it's area here in Texas, it's history. Uh, Palmetto Ranch. Mm-hmm. It's written by, um, it's written by Dr. Jody Edward Gann and also another gentleman, William Alexander McWhorter. Hope I'm pronouncing it right. M- movie is a... Miniseries. It's called The White Queen. Uh-huh. Uh, it's got my all-time favorite, Rebecca Ferguson. Oh, Rebecca uh, Ferguson. Yeah. What was she in? Aside from The White Queen. Well, she was in a couple of the Mission Impossible movies. She was that sniper with the very long legs. The one that teams Yeah, she up. does well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she... Uh, she is A-OK. Yes, 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 yes. She no she... relation to Ma and Paul Ferguson. No. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you make me? <laughs> I am really glad that that took place. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. So yeah, so Rebecca Ferguson's in there, but it's about um, Elizabeth, who, Queen Elizabeth, who marries Edward the Fourth. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is during the height of the War of the Roses between the Yorks and the Lancasters. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Lancasters. Yeah. Uh, oh, Bert. <laughs> well, Elizabeth is actually a Lancaster. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I we have to let you know, Alan is not doing well. He's not sick. It's yeah. not 
It's the, allergies. The COV. I've been, I've been, yeah. It is allergies. I've been taking, I've been <clears throat> yeah. taking my temperature. <laughs> That's right. He's got a low grade temp. Uh, and I tasted, <laughs> I tasted that coffee. That coffee was good. So, uh, okay. Can we move on from you? Yeah, go and ahead. Move on to Dr. Well, just watch, Edward Young. <coughs> watch the White Queen. It's a mini series. Yeah. It again, it's about. So y'all watch the White. It's Queen. about the War of the Roses. I'll be watching this. It's about the War of the Roses between the uh, the White Rose Yorks and the Red Rose Lancasters, which you know came to an end. Uh, Battle of Bosworth Field. In 1485. You're really powering through this. Woo! 1485. I don't want to tell you what happened, but you probably know, but just watch it anyway. Spoiler alert. Yeah, well, yeah. 500-year-old spoiler alert. Yeah, I know. All right, well, let's you go know, ahead and one get of the Joey... One of the participants in that battle... Ever. ...was found not too long ago underneath the uh, parking lot. Yeah? Yeah. So... What did he say? He was dead. Oh. He said, I'm not dead. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. Uh, we need to hurry up because i got to blow my nose again. All right. All right. Without further ado, we're going to get Dr. Jody Edward again on the show. All right, Dr. Jody, it's great to have you on the show, man. Um, it feels like an eternity uh, since we last met. How long has it been? Many moons. Many moons. That's right. Spoken like, uh, you know, somebody's part of the Texas Rangers. So, of course. Um, all right. Now, you came by, uh, you came into town the other day during our event, and this was, this was pretty cool. Um, you had actually reached out to us about, you know, being on the show. You wanted to talk about your latest book, East Texas Troubles. Um, and this, I think this was shortly after the Greg Demick interview. And then uh, you were also like, hey, man, Dr. Stephen Harden's a good friend of mine. That's going to be cool that he's coming to y'all's event. And I was like, oh, man, that's, that's really cool. And then like a day or two later, you bought a ticket. I saw the purchase come in online. I'm like, I know that name. Uh, I know that long Dr. Jody Edward Ginn name. Um, and so I was like, hey, man, you're, you're coming into town. That's going to be awesome. So we had a great time getting to hang out with, yeah. with you and Steven and Denton uh, and just had a, a great time. Those old fashions, those smoky old fashions. Thank you, man. You got the ball rolling on that one. <laughs> time to enjoyed it very much and, and uh, always great to spend time with old friends like like Stephen and, and get to know Denton better I've known Denton but not and I've never gotten that much time with him so I appreciate you for you know enabling that whole situation and spend more time with him and then to get to know you know you guys and make some new friends that's always great so I had a blast too oh awesome man yeah, we yeah. feel we feel likewise we feel like we made a new friend so yeah absolutely and uh so uh, this new friend of ours has two books uh, you've put out. Now, we mentioned those earlier, uh, Palmito Ranch and your latest East Texas Troubles. Give us a quick rundown on what those two books are about. Well, I've got the two books. I'll also mention I've got two anthology chapters out there uh, as well. That, that kind of was the basis. And in the academic world, that's kind of a lot of times where you start before you get a full book out. You get a chapter in an anthology, which is a collection of, of, of you know, on related topics, um, but you know, it's it's a little less work. You get some of your research out there, and and uh, and it helps build your 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 vita in the academic world. And your, you know, if if you're, I'm not in, you know, traditional academia. I'm not a, working for tenure. But if you're working for tenure, that kind of that helps you as well. You can have multiple chapters and a book, things like that. So that's where I started. I, I published a article uh, first on Texas Rangers and myth and memory, 
that came out in a book called Texan Identities in 2016, I believe. Um, and I just found out I've, I've already been plagiarized from that work. So that's kind of fun. Hey, was it the greatest form uh, of uh, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. That's, that's how I choose to take it as well. So um, that, that was one, like say Texas Rangers, a myth and memory. Um, and pretty much what it sounds like a discussion of what people have come to believe about the Texas Rangers versus what the real history is. Um, and there's a lot of depth and nuance to that. Then the next one was in a, a book about the, the uh, Republic of Texas era, which was specifically intended to encourage people. There's so much work on the revolution, which lasted a couple of years, give or take when you want to argue it really began. Um, but, the, but the Republic lasted 10 years, and there's comparatively far less, exponentially less research and publications on the Republic period. And so uh, some scholars out of Glenn College, uh, Ken Howell, and gosh, I'm going to have to apologize. I'm forgetting his colleague's name, who I don't know near as well. Uh, they published this. They put together this anthology and uh, asked me to do a, a chapter about Texas Indians during the Republic because I'd done some research on a Delaware chief named John Connor, who's the only Indian to receive a land grant from Texas because under the Constitution, Indians and African Americans, or even a partial descent, could not receive land grants. And the reason that this gentleman was singled out much like Ben McCullough, who, who Spirit of Texas Bank has a statue of in front of their, their 105 location down towards Montgomery. Yeah. Um, ben McCullough was an African-American descent, and he received it for his you know, sacrifice service and sacrifice in the revolution. Well, this gentleman, uh, Delaware Chief John Connor, received his because he was Sam Houston's emissary to the Comanches and other tribes in the wake of the Lamar during during Houston's second term as president of the Republic, which had to follow. They couldn't serve consecutively under the Texas Republic Constitution. So he followed, uh, Lamar gets to follow him in as the second president, then he comes right back as the third. Um, and but, but Lamar has basically tried to run all the Indians out of Texas. And obviously the situation is very tense and they need uh, an Indian with serious um, reputation and, and, and clout and the ability to get to and negotiate with these tribes. And that was where the Delawares or Lenny Lenape is their really their, their traditional name. Uh, and he was a chief in that tribe, eventually became the principal chief of that tribe because he was descended from principal chiefs. And he, um, but he, he serves as, a, as an emissary, as a negotiator not just a um, guide or a translator like uh, a lot of early writings uh, kind of dismissed him and other, uh, other uh, Indians that actually had much more significant roles. And so in the end, he was given a land grant. So that was what that one was about. And then my next, uh, you know, my first book that was a co-authored book was Palmito Ranch. That was co-authored with my colleague, William McWhorter who was uh, served about 10 years as the military sites coordinator for the Texas Historical Commission. He coordinated the entire project. And we ended up going and doing research in the papers of John Ford, Colonel John Ford, who had already gained fame as a Texas Ranger commander and then was a Texas military forces commander during the um, Civil War. Uh, but he stayed here in Texas and they guarded uh, basically the Southern border. And this battle was uh, the last battle of the Civil War, the last land battle of the Civil War, 
uh, occur there at Palmito Ranch. But we also found out during this research, uh, and these never before reviewed records, that um, the last battle of the Civil War was actually the second battle of Palmito Ranch, the earlier battle having been larger uh, and longer. And it involved the only case during the Civil War where foreign troops uh, engaged in partisan combat on American soil. And that's because some of Juan, Juan Cortina's men, a partisan group in Mexico, had uh, actually joined with Union forces and fought. And some of them even got captured by the Confederate forces or the Texas forces. And, uh, uh, and so that was a unique historical event. And that had never really been recorded, especially in any depth. And Ford had saved all the records, the field reports from the ongoing battle. And so I got to write about all that. It was very exciting. And again, that was on behalf of the Texas Historical Commission. Then East Texas Troubles finally is my first solo, completely solo work. And that is built on my dissertation. Um, and that is a story that is, it's not merely a story of the cleanup of San Augustine, but it's also coinciding, it's exorably linked to the final major phase of evolution for the Texas Rangers into full law enforcement and into to the step that leads them to become the elite investigative arm of the Texas Department of Public Safety, which gets created the same year that the San, San Augustine cleanup uh, gets underway. You have a, uh, well, one, you have uh, Robert Utley. That was one of the things that, that we, we pointed out. Robert Utley, how did you come across, because he did the foreword on your East Texas Troubles. How did you guys uh, connect there? And I got a follow-up question as well, because you said this was, you know, some of the information that you had come across with the Palmito Ranch was uh, never before surveyed information or something along those lines. You do a ton of research, and I believe that I've come across, well, I know I've talked to Denton and he said similar things and Dr. Harden has said similar things. And I remember you saying some of this as well when we met up of information about things that, you know, people have never come across notes or surveys or different things like that. How often is that the case? Like this is, this is new information on stuff that's 150, 200 years old. Uh, more often than you would think, um, because, you know, there's just so much history out there for one thing that, um, and it's and it's always easier. I mean, it's kind of the human condition, the human nature to you know take the the, the easiest path, and uh, but and and so you kind of just go and grab what's kind of right in front of you. That's that's always easier. But those of us who dig, you know, I come out of a law enforcement background, investigating, digging, because you know the goal is not what's easy, but what's the truth. I mean, because well, in law enforcement, you're looking to you know put somebody in prison potentially, whereas here. You're, you're not putting them in prison as a historian, but you are uh, indicting them in the historical record. And if you if you are going to make a claim or an ex, or accusation or or an assertion of, of something positive too, I mean you're making a claim, and so you really want to dig as deep as possible and and find out what's out there. Or I do, and and most of the the scholars that I work with, that's the goal. Um, but also it's a it's a product of sometimes records just you know were in a circumstance they were for lost and forgotten in somebody's attic or in the case of forged records they were in continual transition they belonged to the united daughters of the confederacy and they would find a place that they, they didn't have their own place to to house them and make them available to researchers and so they would they would find a place and it would they would be there for a little while and 
maybe there's a researcher working on it at that time or not, um, you know, uh, that, that even is interested in those records, because that's the other thing is, you know, you've got to have somebody out there who's interested in that particular topic to, to you know, and that finds out about them. Um, um, or, you know, and if they're not, then, you know, then they move on, they transition, and then they're not available. They're just in storage somewhere for, you know, sometimes decades at a time. But they finally found a, a good home at the, um, the Haley Library in Midland. Uh, and so that, that's, a, that's a, a privately funded um, library, the, the J. Evitz Haley family. Um, it's the, the Nita and J. Evitz Haley Library, I believe, in Midland. And they um, may have that name wrong, but anyhow, they they took they provided a home, and then they accession. That's the other problem is a lot of times records get donated to an archive, but if the money and the staff is not there to fully accession them, then it's not really known what's in those records. And so, and you know, researchers, especially grad students, they have limited time and limited funds to travel somewhere. And, and we're getting into the digital age where more of this stuff is getting digitized and it's getting easier, but this is even before that. And so before that, you don't have, if they're not all digitized and just online, you've got to go there and, and sift through those records. And it could be thousands, even tens of thousands of pages. And so you want, you want some type of, 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 of guide, uh, index to, to go through. And they, they hired a fellow out there that, that uh, just did the most amazing index that I've ever seen in an archive and really fully accession those papers so that we could really target. And we, I mean, cause even we had limited time and we were able to really target and say, okay, we, you know, we're using the, that index he had created. We want this file. We want that file. We don't need all those files. And, and that really, you know, expedites uh, the process when you have a, you know, really fully fleshed out accessioning and, and indexes and so forth. So, uh, and, and how you got uh, connected with Robert Utley? Oh, so with Utley, um, so I had I had begun this research as a personal project, and had made a a, a friend with a gentleman named Al Loman, who um, he's he's since passed. And Al was, I mean, gosh, Al knew everybody that was anybody in Texas history. He owned the largest Texana collection in the world. Literally had a full separate house that was his library tens of thousands of volumes. His, his J. Frank Doby collection was over 10,000 volumes alone. He donated that to, to the, you know, the, the Whitliffe the collection at uh, Texas State University. Um, he's got uh, thousands. His, his Carl Herzog printing arts collection is many, many thousands. I forget that's at Texas A&M, the Cushing Library. And, uh, and then many, many, many more tens of thousands of volumes were donated to uh, Texas State Historical Association. Um, and, and, and the money that was raised from selling off that collection made an Al Loman uh, award in local history. And so there was just, um, um, he, 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 like I say, he knew everybody that was anybody. And so he knew I was working on this and he was, he put together a panel at the Texas State Historical Association at TSHA in 2005. Now I was still working as an investigator for district attorney's office. And, um, but I was doing this research. And so he puts me on the panel and Robert Utley is moderating the panel. And little did I know that, that Utley was working on a second volume, uh, a 20th century history. He did a two volume history, Lone Star Justice and then Lone Star Lawman. And he was, he had, Lone Star Justice had come out 
in 2002, I think. And he was working still, getting ready to finish Lone Star Lawman when he moderated this panel. And I did a presentation on St. Augustine. Well, he had already had an, a, a, a section on St. Augustine um, in his manuscript. And after hearing my presentation, he asked me to review it. Um, I gave him uh, many recommendations, which he took. Um, one, of it, one of it ended up being flawed on my part. And as my research progressed, I found out that that, that particular element was flawed. Uh, but he used everything, uh, cited me in his notes and included me in his, um, in, in, in his um, uh, rec you know, recognition in, in his introduction and so forth. And that's what really kind of gave me the boost and that, and we developed a, you know, a friendship after that. And that gave me the boost to think that, hey, maybe I could do this professionally. Awesome. Um, now you have a question, right? Well, I happen to right? know regarding the, the Texas Rangers. Well, in terms of uh, who Ranger Ray, or because uh, <laughs> I happen to know a Texas Ranger named Ranger Ray, Ray Martinez, and uh, apparently he uh, gained some fame for uh, a little event that took place in 1966 at the University of Texas, where Charles Whitman was up at the Texas Tower and shot up the campus and killed uh, about. I think there were like 18 total deaths. I don't know if that was including himself, but uh, uh, my understanding is you happen to know Ray Martinez. I do. I'm honored to know Ray, Ray Martinez and be able to call him a friend. Um, Ray is one of the most um, humble and, and just decent human beings that, that I think has ever walked this planet, in my opinion. Um, and yes, he was when he was actually before he was a ranger. Uh, when that event happened, he was an Austin police officer, and he has gained much notoriety and, and still receives calls whenever there's a shooting at a campus and that sort of thing. But, uh, um, um, but yeah, he, he had to, um, uh, along with Houston McCoy and, and a civilian whose name escapes me at the moment, uh, had to, um, uh, they all risked their lives to, you know, put an end to that deadly shooting spree by a man who have apparently had been, a, you know, unfortunately afflicted by a tumor uh, and that had literally driven him to kill. And he had killed his, his wife and, and uh, I think his mother or her mother, I'm forgetting right now, um, and uh, beforehand uh, and, and in, a, in a condo, an apartment uh, there in Austin over off Lavaca and then proceeded to the tower and, and shot as many people as he could before um, Houston and, and Ray and another gentleman put a stop to it. Yeah, I I saw the uh, movie that they made about it. Uh, I think it was called The Tower. Um, There's been several. There's several documentaries and movies. Um, I even went through grad school with a gentleman that that made a documentary on it. And um, some have gotten, there was one, there was one recently that involved a lot of like high level, you know, kind of Hollywood people that, um, that's, I think is the most recent and, and it's gotten the most play because of having that level of folks involved with it. Well, you know, what's funny is, is that I know the civilian's name, his name is Alan Crumb. Uh, that was, that was the third guy that went up in the tower, but, uh, I forgot the name of the guy who played Charles Whitman. He was that Snake Plissken guy. What's his name here? Help me out. Why? <laughs> Snake Plissken? <laughs> huh? Darryl Russell? Russell. Kurt Russell. Kurt Russell, that's it. Kurt Russell. That's right. Kurt Russell played Charles Whitman. 
That in was the like movie? A, yeah. Because I saw like a documentary back in the day. It was probably yeah. about 20 years ago I saw a documentary yeah. on it. But I, I, yeah. asked, uh, I asked Ray about it. He, he, he said that he wasn't all that thrilled about the way the movie portrayed him. Uh, portrayed his wife, for instance. I mean, I mean, I met his wife. She looks nothing like the uh, woman they portrayed in the movie. And, um, and I got to tell you, you know, just watching the movie itself, the courage that those three men had you know, going through that door and, and surrounding uh, Charles Whitman. I mean, I probably, my shorts would have been full of bricks, I think. But, uh, but that took a lot of courage. But what upsets me about the whole story is, is that whenever I mention, by the way, I know uh, if uh, Suzanne Martinez is watching, uh, she's a friend of mine. She's related to him. I don't know if that's, his, if that's uh, her uncle, but uh, Suzanne, I'm going to make sure that you watch this show. Um, but the, the thing that kind of upsets me is that whenever I mention him is people always immediately throw out this controversy that I, I don't see there being a controversy, but people are playing it up. And I, I, you know, I keep thinking this is something that someone is just hashing up. I mean, what uh, I'm sure you've heard about uh, the controversy with him. Yeah, I would, I would say I consider it a manufactured controversy because it's, it's you know, it, it has nothing to do with Ray or, or Houston themselves. Um, you know, of course, Houston's passed some years ago. Um, it, it really, it, it, best I can tell you, it, it dates back to, you know, the media coverage at the time, which uh, due to a mistake, I don't think a deliberate act, but a mistake on the Austin police chief uh, at the time, his, his, the initial information he had only mentioned Ray. And so he only mentioned Ray initially to the media. And the media doesn't really make an effort going forward to to alter that and they they run with the focus on Ray. Again, Ray has no control over any of that, but it 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 um it kind of focuses on him and you know, then over the years people, you know, seem to want to, you know, insist that there's some big conflict but Ray never uh denied and in his own book fully credits Houston McCoy um uh, and and so um, I, again, yeah, I think it's a it's really a manufactured thing, and 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 I don't know why keep people you know, but just because they're uninformed, they're misinformed, is why they keep pushing that narrative. Well, I mean, if you look at a lot of the news today, um, you know, like there was there's a controversy about the cop I think in Columbus, Ohio, who shot the girl that was stabbing another woman, and uh, the the media. All it says is that a cop shot a girl or a black girl, but they don't mention anything about the knife. And there's some people that are sitting saying, oh, he should have shot the knife out of her hand. Hmm, I wonder where they got yeah. that idea from. But uh, no, I met, uh, I met Ranger Ray, um, true gentleman. Um, he gave me, well, I, I purchased two of his books. He signed them and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go to bat for him. Now, I will, I, will, I will stand on the side of people who are saying that the, they should have shot the, the knife out of out of the hand because <laughs> that is very easy to do to to shoot a knife out of a hand and they're in a stabbing motion yes you know i mean as, he, as this is going all you gotta do is time it yeah it's all about i wait you gotta you, you gotta, gotta lead you, that hand you gotta wait until the the knife is in the body and that's when it stops there you go. that's the best time just to pray that you yeah. don't shoot the body <laughs> so all right man well hey what what got you interested in uh the texas rangers in the first place well it starts with my great-grandmother. Uh, her name was Daisy May Hines. She lived to be 96 years old. Uh, didn't pass away till I was 20, and I was very close to her. And I grew up hearing stories from her about her baby brother, 
who had been a Texas Ranger and had gone into a town in East Texas and, quote, cleaned it up and was given some engraved pistols as thanks for that. Wow. And that's about all I remembered uh, from those stories when some years later I had gotten into law enforcement and met my first Texas Ranger, a gentleman named Tommy Ratliff, who's now retired. And um, that, that kind of brought those the, the memories of those stories back to me. And so I asked him, I said, you know, I understand I have, um, you know, an ancestor was a ranger and, and, you know, how would I, you know, start researching that? I was a deputy constable in Hayes County at the time and met him in the sheriff's office and in the communications office. And, and he was very, you know, um, pleasant and, and offered me some pointers. And, um, you know, and, and, and I kind of at the, at the time, I wasn't even sure because, you know, it's kind of like uh, the folks, you know, the Cherokee princess in the family or everybody, you know, we're all descended from somebody royal. And, you know, in Texas, for a lot of people, you know, uh, Texas Rangers are like royalty, um, not to everybody, as we'll talk about later, but um, but uh, but to some people, for sure. And so, you know, I, I wasn't too quick to, you know, assume anything. Again, I was in law enforcement, and, you know, it's about the evidence. And so, you know, what what can we prove? What can we not prove? And and so um, he gave me some pointers and, and I started, uh, you know, doing the research and, and doing that, I got connected into the Texas State Historical Association and um, was awarded a couple of fellowships and uh, that helped fund my research trips. Uh, I say, like I was saying earlier, that, that stuff costs money. And, um, and I ended up, you know, hitting some, some, you know, various gold mines of information along the way. And, uh, and it just, it just kind of, you know, one thing led to another and, you know, here I am. So, uh, Jody, speaking of, uh, sort of the, the history of Texas Rangers, can you give us a, a brief history on, uh, this elite group? You know, the, there's, there's two things. If, if you're going to come away with just a brief understanding, so first of all, the Texas Rangers we know today are an elite law enforcement investigative force akin to they're often can you know compared to the fbi the scotland yard the canadian you know mounted police um but they didn't start out that way they started out their history if you really want to track it back it tracks back to the span the northern frontier of new spain and there were these units called flying companies companias companias balates flying companies and those flying companies specifically developed some tactics, some mounted combat tactics that they referred to as perseguir y batir, pursue and strike. And this came about in the wake of the 1680 Pueblo Revolt, where a Spanish captain who had one of those long Spanish names that I would just totally butcher even if I tried to say it, um, but he was a Spanish captain. And a captain in, in the Spanish military at that time uh, was more akin to what we would consider a colonel or maybe even a brigadier general, very high rank, very high rank. And, and he, he's part of a presidial review. The presidios are the forts of the Spanish frontier. And they're, you know, a fort, a, 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 usually made out of stone, if at all possible, uh, sometimes wood, but, you know, it was, a, it was a building where their troops were housed and could defend this spot. And it would be next to hopefully a, a community development, you know, they're trying to bring in and, and, and develop, you know, Spanish communities on the northern frontier, and they would be there to protect them. But what this Spanish captain explained was that the, the Plains Indians, the Indians of the northern frontier, do not fight like we do. They do not fight like in European style, where they line up on a battlefield against you and charge at each other. They don't do it. 
there, there are, um, and many of them uh, by this time have horses. Horses had been brought over by the Spanish, but they had, uh, many of them had, had gotten loose and gone wild and, and had been, um, uh, you know, captured by various tribes, most not notably the, the Comanches had become really strong horsemen and, uh, but the Apaches too and others. And so, um, so they were, they were, they would raid, they would come in and they would hit you, they would take what they could and they would run off back into their, you know, hidden, um, you know, villages and communities, which often, you know, for many of them often, you know, changed over time. Anyway, they didn't just have like a city or town that they lived in, you know, 365, they actually, you know, they were uh, still in kind of a hunter-gatherer mode, many of them, and would, would move their home sites, you know, to different places over different parts of the year. And so you had to pursue them. You couldn't just, you know, engage them. You had to pursue them and strike them where you could find them. And so by the time the Anglos under Stephen F. Austin start showing up in Texas, the Tejanos have been doing this, and these flying companies have been serving in this capacity for generations. And so even while, while Austin is down in Mexico trying to secure his father's uh, grant or um, his grant, his commission to, to settle families in Texas, um, people are already arriving. Families like the Kirkendalls and the Tumlinsons, and they're arriving and they're settling in what's now Columbus, uh, I mean, I mean uh, um, near Columbus, the town of Columbus in Colorado County. And they're getting, they're already facing problems with mainly at that point, Karankawa uh, Indians. Um, and so they ask the Spanish governor, um, Felix Trespalacios, they say, you know, how do we, you know, can you send us some troops to defend us from these Karakawas? And he said, well, we don't have that. You know, they've just come off of, of a 10-year war of independence and their, their populations are depleted, their funds are depleted. They don't, they don't have standing troops that can come out there and defend these new colonists. They say, you, you've got to do that yourself. You've got to break up into districts. And they told them how we do it on the Texas frontier. And then you've got to fight these guys. That, you know, you've got to pursue them and strike. He, he tells them about this. And so when Austin gets back in 1823, he sees one of these letters from Governor Trespalacios and, he, and he's reading these descriptions of how they need to operate. And he recognizes that as having similarity to a system that, that, that you know, that it was used in, in, in the America, in the United States, and then going back all the way to England, uh, what they called in, in those homes, rangers or ranging. And, you know, where, where, where men would arm themselves and go out and patrol an area and, you know, and engage, um, you know, hostile forces where they found them. And so that's where he, he, when he writes back, he's asking permission, hey, well, can I actually, like, out of my own pocket, I'll fund it, but I'm like, can I put some guys to work and do what you've, you've already got these guys doing? I want to put 10 guys of my own to work and, and doing that. Now, that, those 10 men, there's no record that they ever came to that ever came to fruition, that he ever put that group in the field. But he's, he's referring to something that was already going on with, uh, and that was being commanded by the, the Kirkendalls and the Tumlinsons and others. And they were already out there in the field doing this. And then they continued to do this throughout the colonial period. And then under the Texas provisional government, it finally gets institutionalized as the quote, Corps of Rangers. And that's what they are. They're this mounted military unit that, you know, light cavalry 
that can pursue and strike uh, their enemies when, you know, in, in reaction, usually in reaction to raids and, and, and attacks of that sort. And it's a slow transition into uh, law enforcement in the late 19th century after the frontier closes in the wake of the Red River War in 1874. Um, they've created what's called the Frontier Battalion. And now that, that there really isn't an Indian problem to deal with, um, on the frontier, they've been given limited powers of arrest with that new law in 1874, and so they, they start tracking fugitives on the frontier. And then that kind of transitions into uh, more and more of a law enforcement role. There's questions about that. They, they have limited authority, and there's even, you know, uh, lawsuits and, you know, and threats of prosecution, the, uh, you know, because they're saying not the, the, only the officers, lieutenants and above would have that arrest authority. And so they changed the law once again in 1901. They create the Ranger Force. They make them full peace officers. And then the final transition, as I mentioned, with 1935 is when they create the Department of Public Safety. They take the Rangers out from under the, the adjutant generals, which is the state military arm, what we now call the National Guard. They take them out from under there and they put them together with the Highway Patrol, create some other bureaus, uh, as well to create the Department of Public Safety, and that's what still exists, but has continued to evolve in varying degrees to, you know, until today. So they start out as military, but now they're investigators. We would be remiss if we didn't bring up the greatest Texas Ranger of all time, right? Chuck Norris. Yeah. Chuck Norris. I'm sure every single person watching this has questions about Walker, Texas Ranger. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you, you, you're right. You can't avoid discussing Walker, Texas Ranger because of its cultural impact, its cultural reach. Um, when I was a, a, a DA investigator, um, I went to Georgia <clears throat> with an African-American deputy sheriff, um, and we're wearing suit jackets and our badges and pistols, and we went to, to uh, pick up a fugitive. Uh, that had uh, been caught in the um, Atlanta airport. And so we go to Clayton County, Georgia, pick this up, and we're there for a couple of days in that process. And literally everywhere we went, this, you know, white Texas officer and black Texas officer, everybody we met called us Walker and Beret. <laughs> so, I mean, so, uh, you know, as much as we'd like to, uh, you know, we can't deny that that's out there. And so, yeah, but as far as, Accuracy, authenticity, there's, there's a lot of issues, you know, I mean, long hair. I, I actually had this conversation with some producers of a, of a later show that didn't make it. Um, but we sat there, I sat there with two former chief rangers and, and, and another ranger. And I went through this list, uh, you know, for these producers to explain, you know, this is, you know, if you're wanting to be authentic, if you're wanting to be accurate, you know, portrayal of, Texas Rangers today, you know, no long hair, no black hat, no beard, no karate, no <laughs> pistol. Wait, okay, wait, whoa, whoa, hold, hold. stop. No karate. Okay. This, no dusters. No this beard. Is an okay, isn't doesn't Chuck have a beard in his? Uh, yeah, yeah. He has he's a got, black he's hat. got a fist under the yeah, beard. That's right. He's got a yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the movie Alien, you know. <laughs> 
Almost. All right, all right. Yeah, you can definitely. edit this one. Yeah, we definitely will. <laughs> but the black hat, I mean, come on. I bought a black hat in Tombstone, Arizona, thinking, hey, I look like a Texas Ranger. Well, you bought it in Arizona. Yeah. Tombstone. Were there any Texas Rangers in Tombstone? Doesn't matter. It's a black hat. How many people do you know buys a cowboy hat? In I Tombstone, wish I could Arizona? say zero. Well, you know, it was two. It was two stores down from where Morgan uh, Earp was killed. Oh, that's a brutal scene. Yeah. So, man, okay, your book, your latest book, East Texas Troubles. This reads honestly like a either a fiction, like just shoot 'em up book or um how would i or just like it, it just seems too outrageous to be true um the the absolute violence you say we say east texas troubles like my dad grew up in hemphill right so that's right next to you know san augustine county san augustine um and so his grand his dad you know grew up there so i'm sure maybe he heard the gunshots of which there were a lot um so this this book, East Texas Troubles, ladies and gentlemen, uh, if you want to read like, okay, you're always thinking Chicago or New York or places like that where, you know, this just wild shoot 'em up, everybody's getting killed, you know, you got to hide the wife and kids. This is <laughs> in a small Texas town that this stuff is going on. And I, I, I still was like trying to wrap my head around just the chaos of, of what it was. What got you writing this book? I know you mentioned the dissertation. This is part of your dissertation. But what got you writing this this book, East Texas Troubles? Well, because um, the the main boots on the ground ranger, Dan Hines, was that baby brother of my great grandmother that you that I was telling you about before. And um, it's uh, you know, so it's a story that had been lost to history, and 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 thanks to her and his daughter who had kept. A, um, <clears throat> his, pardon me, his, his daughter had kept a, uh, uh, a scrapbook that her mother had put together back when she was, a, you know, she was a very young child. She was, she was born in 34. So she was a very young child when all this went on. Um, doesn't really re recollect any of that period. By the time she was old enough to know anything, her, her dad wasn't a ranger anymore. He was running a ranch. Um, and, and he never really talked about it, as is true of most rangers. Most rangers don't talk a lot, don't write books. Every once in a while, there's one that does it. I mean, every generation, there's at least one. But, but the vast majority of them um, don't talk a lot about it, even with their families. And so she didn't even recall any of these stories. She had not looked at this scrapbook, had not read any of the articles in it. <clears throat> God bless her mother for having put it together and saved it for him. Um, because that's what really kicked off, um, and the other, and the fact that she had had the pistols, the engraved pistols that he was given, which were state of the art Smith and Wesson three fifty seven mag magnums, first year three fifty seven magnum was ever produced, wow. and uh, so these were you know cutting edge, true shooters, you know firearms, and uh, but they are engraved from the grateful citizens of San Augustine to Dan Hines Ranger. Your the, the primary problem of this book is the McClanahan Burleson gang. Uh, who were they? So the McClanahan Burleson gang um, was the group that had basically come to to run this town. They had they had taken control of the town by by nineteen you know thirty four 
they are in complete control, not even when federal agents come in. I mean, and that was, I agree, it's like, I read that story, it's like out of a B movie, yeah. you know, where, you know, we don't allow feds in our town. Right. I mean, literally, he comes into town, he's undercover, but they find out who he is, they, they, they confront him right on the, on the, on the, in the broad daylight, on the um, fairgrounds where they're having the fair. Yeah. And they tell him, you know, we're, we're, we're rangers. Cause some of them had Ma Ferguson ranger commissions, the state, you know, but they were special rangers. They weren't actually state rangers. And we can talk about that distinction, but um, the, they're like, you know, this is our town and, and we don't have feds here and they beat him up. And I mean, well, um, and then they put sand in his, in his tank, gas tank, and, <clears throat> and, um, and said, you know, you better not come back here. And the beauty of that, talking about research, I found that I'd, I'd heard a very vague story about that they had beat up some federal agent. That's it. That's all in the, in the you know, local memory of, of the deal. There was very, very little of that left in local memory. But I found those records in the, in, in the College Park, Maryland, the National Archives facility in College Park, Maryland, which is where they put most of their law enforcement records. And the Secret Service agent in charge based out of San Antonio, who was a notable guy himself, um, he had done daily reports recording of the process of this investigation and what had happened to his agents in St. Augustine. And in the process, you know, when before the All Red Rangers get there, this all starts and, and his total inability to get anybody to talk to him uh, at that point in time about what had happened. And then the, to the, the, the 180 degree shift he sees after the All Red Rangers come in and start and convince the town that they're gonna be safe and they'll protect them from the gang. And, um, and then he's able to start getting people to talk and then the All Red Rangers, Dan Hines and Captain James McCormick primarily. But early on, there was a gentleman, Leo Bishop, uh, ranger that was also there for about the first two months as they're getting it under control. They sent several rangers in to begin with. But so the gang, you're asking about the gang. So the gang, um, and, and I, the word gang, I used um, because that was, that was the name given to, that was the term given to them by the law enforcement, whether it's the rangers, the secret service, the, the media, the newspapers, local paper, local fathers, local leaders, all that sort of thing, referred to them as a gang. And it's important to know because there was a descendant of one of the Burlesons that asked me about it. And, and, and there's two very different narratives that have been passed down in that community. Uh, and, and one is through the descendants of, of, of Burlesons and so forth. And I had made a point early on, back in 2001, um, I, you know, when I went, first went to San Augustine, I met with kind of the, you know, a, a, a Burleson descendant um, who, who, gave me their side of the story. And, and that was really good that she had, because I was able to search for it and look for it. And it's like, you know, I mean, you always want to have the different sides of the story, because if you're not looking for something, you may overlook it. But I was looking from the beginning for the Burleson side of the story. And the Burleson side of the story was kind of the gist was this, is that this wasn't anything to do with common criminality. This was um, a, a feud. This was, the, this was all this violence was rooted in a local feud that dated back generations. That was the first element of, of that narrative. The second was, is that the town was, quote, split 50-50 in their sympathies, you know, on the, the sides of the feud. 
Well, <clears throat> I, like I say, and so I spent 20 years looking for any evidence of that. And what I found was the exact opposite, um, that, that, a, that this was a criminal gang, a, 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 an unsophisticated, you know, mafia type organization led by some key people, uh, uh, you know, who were members of the McClanahan's. And that's why I put, that is one thing that was a selection of mine is I put the McClanahan name first because the, the top leaders, the, the, the copy to duty copy uh, uh, and the you know, main capos were, were uh, mainly McClanahan's. And then their close associates, the Burlesons come kind of after that in the chain of command, if you will. Again, this is all very informal. And then they did have further out associates and they did control elements of local criminality like you know, bootlegging and stuff. They were you know, demanding a, a payoff in order to let them operate and that sort of thing. They weren't bootlegging themselves, uh, but they were demanding payoffs and, and they controlled other aspects, gambling machines and businesses and stuff. If you wanted to have one, uh, you, you, know, you had to have to give them a cut and that sort of thing. And so they were, they were a true criminal gang uh, as was established by um, all of the records, you know, that, that recorded at the time, including the trials. So I got, I got two questions for you. Um, well, based on what you're saying is like this gang from 1934, probably into 1936, uh, they pretty much had control of the town. The, the timing's off. They, they really started upwards of a decade earlier. Okay. You know, in the and definitely by the late 1920s, they're they're getting away with murder, and and it's but it all ends at the beginning of 1935. That's when the All Red Rangers show up, uh, as in January of 1935, and they're not in control anymore after that. Okay, so if they have control of the town, uh, why is it that they were extorting black sharecroppers and 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 extorting them and robbing them? One, and also. Why was it, or how did the Jim Crow laws of that time keep those families, the black families, from being able to seek justice? Well, in a nutshell, that's that's how they built their power in the beginning. They weren't, they didn't go right to um, um, taking advantage, you know, or criminal committing criminal acts, especially the brazen criminal acts against whites in the beginning. And the, the interesting thing is, is I didn't even know that for about the first ten years of my research, because in the collective memory of the uh, the white community, that's not what they discussed. They, now, they talked about the types of crimes being committed that I ended up finding actual court records that corroborated, but, those, but they didn't mention that the primary victims of those crimes were members of the black community. They just didn't say one way or the other. Um, the focus was on the violence that happened, that did happen between whites and that whites were the victim of, and that's kind of, and, and understandably why that would stick in the memory, uh, because with the exception of a handful of people, most of the people that I talked to even early on were young children at the time that this was going on. Um, only a handful were, were adults, though I did, did get the benefit of, of talking to a number um, who, who were in fact young adults when this happened and, and were in their 90s, um, uh, you know, in, in the early 2000s when, when I was able to go there. Um, but it's not until I found the actual court records that I learned that yeah, the, the, the primary victims of the bulk of this crime were in fact African-Americans. And the, the issue is, is that at this time under Jim Crow, African-Americans uh, typically were not allowed access to the courts for redress 
of crimes committed by whites. In other words, a black person, you know, if they went and filed, tried to file charges, tried to make a complaint to the local police, at, you know, during Jim Crow and says, you know, this white guy, you know, committed this crime against me, they're just going to be ignored. Uh, you know, um, that's just, I mean, that was the way it was in, in communities across the country and um, many. And, um, and so they, they simply didn't have access. And so that's why this is so monumental. I mean, I, I, I remember uh, the, the, um, the, the chief historian of the Texas State Historical Association, Walter Banger, is a, is a, is a, a Jim Crow era scholar and you know, has done a lot of work on the KKK and that sort of thing. And he passed by, we were at a, a TSHA event and I was describing uh, this work, uh, this, you know, my research to a colleague and he passed by as I was telling this, this other colleague that, you know, I have multiple uh, full case files, including transcripts of all the testimony where white juries convicted white men solely on the testimony of black victims and wit witnesses. And furthermore, those black witness victims and witnesses testified that it was the all red Texas Rangers who brought them their day in court. Well, I mean, he walked by as I was saying that, and I mean, he whipped around, he about got whiplash. It looked like he's like, what, what, tell me that again? And he's like, do you have a publisher? And I already did at that point. I appreciated the, the interest, but, um, but that just tells you, you know, and other colleagues, when I would give that rundown to them, they were, they, they're just astounded because, you know, it's not something that, that they've ever heard before for, from this period that, that that would even, you know, be allowed to happen. But it did, and like I said, I've got the court records to prove it, and I've got the testimony from those victims and witnesses to prove it. So you mentioned uh, earlier Maul Ferguson. So who was Maul and Paul Ferguson, and also who was James Allred? James and Miriam A. Ferguson. James Ferguson was governor. Um, I don't think there's many, uh, if any, scholars who would argue that he was probably the most corrupt governor in Texas history, maybe one of the most corrupt governors in the United States history. Um, he was shameless and he was eventually impeached uh, for his abuses of power and, and, and corruption in office. And so what he does is, is he, he um, since he can't run again, he runs his wife as his proxy. And so that's, he's, he's originally known as Farmer Jim. He tries to be a populist. He calls himself Farmer Jim. But then when he runs Ma, they become Ma and Pa Ferguson. But he runs his wife, so it's Ma and Pa Ferguson. And um, they were just notorious for, first of all, for selling pardons. Um, there is a, there's an old joke that even some people around the Capitol today still know where um, Ma's, Ma's, you know, gets in, it's a elevator, she's in the elevator and a, and a, and a, and a legislator or or a, um, or a lobbyist, depending on the version you hear, uh, steps in the elevator with her, accidentally steps on her toe and, 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 and goes, oh, goodness me, you know, uh, pardon me, governor. And she, she looks at him and says, you'll have to ask Paul about that. And that's because, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you guys are a little slow on the uptake here. <laughs> I'm kidding, you guys. Um, but uh, yeah, and, and, and that was because it was known that she was his proxy. I mean, she wasn't running anything, you know, you know, he's in the driver's seat, you know, he, this is just his way of getting around, you know, having been banned from running for office. 
And so, um, and then furthermore, they were notorious for giving appointments to all sorts of things, but especially to the Texas Rangers and the Special Ranger Commissions to put people strictly out of political patronage. In other words, with no regard to their you know, professional experience or even their criminal histories, she would appoint they would appoint, you know, people, if they supported them politically, then they could get these appointments. Um, you know, some of them, you know, the actual ranger positions came with salaries, state salaries. So that's even, you know, more, but the special ranger commissions, even though they didn't come with salaries, they, they, they were actually arguably worse because uh, there's no supervision of them. Um, and, and, and they're out there with full law enforcement authority. And that's what some of these McClanahan's and one Burleson had was, was these special commissions and they were using those to intimidate. And that's that's really how they were able to take control of the white community because they had these commissions and and, and so they have these law enforcement credentials. And so even whites that were otherwise uh, inclined to um, uh, stand up to them, you know, uh, you know, were fearful. And then of course when they start, you know, openly killing people to boot and nobody will come forth to testify against them, well, it's just a, it's just this vicious cycle that won't break. Yeah, that's wild. I, one of the numbers that stood out to me was around five. Uh, James Allred decommissioned about five thousand Rangers. Yeah, they're estimates. There's you know most scholars would you know uh, think that she commissioned probably two to three thousand at least. Some, but there are some estimates up to five thousand um, uh, special Rangers. So five thousand people running around the state with full law enforcement authority, but nobody supervising them. Because that's not what they were meant to be. A special rangers were created in the late 19th century, um, and they were intended for people who had law enforcement-related jobs, but weren't going to be paid for by the state. They were going to be working for the railroads, railroad investigators, and you still have some of those today. Uh, the oil industry, I don't think anybody, that they, they, I don't think they do any of that today. Um, the cattle investigators, we still have special ranger cattle investigators. Um, but I mean, they'll be the first to tell you, we're not Texas rangers, we're special rangers. That's, it's a separate law that it's created under it. It's, and it's administratively completely separate that the, um, the adjutant generals and now DPS do administer the, you know, the, the actual issuance of the commissions, but they don't supervise these people. They don't pay these people. They're paid by these private entities. The only other one uh, that I know of today is the National Insurance Crime Bureau. They have investigators. That's a kind of quasi-governmental uh, entity, and they have investigators. And if they work in Texas as a part of their region, they can get a special ranger. And it gives them law enforcement authority. But they have to be bonded. They have to be T-close certified. Today, it's much more rigid, um, you know, background checks. And all this. Back then, you know, uh, uh, Lone Wolf Gonzalez, very, very famous uh, Texas Ranger of that era, Lone Wolf Gonzalez, once quipped that Ma had to pardon her Rangers before she could commission them. So obviously, you had you said that uh, James Ferguson probably the most uh, corrupt governor we've ever had. Um, so obviously, the Ferguson era is the lowest point in the in the Rangers' history. Would you agree with that? I, I think there's a strong argument for that. You know, as, as, a, as a historian, we're, I'm often careful about saying the, the most, the least, the highest, the lowest, the first, the last, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, because, you know, it's all about what we know right now. 
And then when you're talking about assessing like somebody's, you know, uh, tenure, it's, you know, can be subjective as well. But, but I think there's a strong argument to make. I'll tell you that when I, my first exhibit that I did back in 2001, uh, which exists now at the uh, Texas Rangers, original Texas Ranger Museum, uh, which is now at the uh, Buckhorn in San Antonio, um, it opens up talking about the Fergusons. And I first had that on display at a Texas Rangers, former Texas Rangers gala at the Wyo Ranch and Hotel back in 2002. And this, you know, and, and people are coming in, it's in, their, in the grand ballroom or grand entryway of the Wyo Ranch Hotel. And and people are, you know, kind of coming by as they're going into the gala and they would stop and look at it to varying degrees. But this one couple really stops and, and the lady in particular, she's reading it thoroughly. She's reading every word of, of this exhibit and, and she's going through it. And I'm standing, you know, nearby. And after, um, after she's done, she, she looks over at me and she says, is this, is this your exhibit? And I said, yes, ma'am, it is. And she says, well, um, I'm a, I'm a descendant. I'm, you know, Ma and Pa Ferguson were my great aunt and uncle, or aunt and uncle, something like that. And um, and so, of course, I kind of steal myself for the for the the, the tongue lashing. And uh, and then she looks straight at mine. She says, "And you don't know the half of how corrupt they were." Wow, wow. that's uh... <laughs> dang. So... Did you interview her to get the information? <laughs> <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, no. Yeah, they they. they there, there's not, there's, there's this, I, I, I haven't heard anybody um, argue that they weren't, that, you know, so some people do point out that, you know, we, we've never really proven how they were funneling all this money for selling of pardons, though there is one theory. They had a ranch in Bosque County, and I was consulting for a museum there uh, several years ago and was told the local lore about how they funneled their money is that on their ranch there in Bosque County, which is west of Waco, they would, um, they had this bull and the bull had a name, I don't recall now. And it was very well known, really big bull. And that bull stayed in this one pasture and never moved, but yet there was bill of sale after bill of sale after bill of sale on record and allegedly in the county records back then for this bull, they would just sell this same bull over and over and over again. And that's how they were allegedly laundering the pardon money. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't, um, if you haven't yet, uh, you got to buy East Texas Troubles. I know you can buy it on Amazon. Where are some other? Can you buy it anywhere else? East Texas Troubles. You can co contact the former Texas Ranger Foundation and get if you would like a signed and inscribed copy. Uh, they do have some copies there, and it's where I work, so you can. Uh, that's available. It's a little more expensive than getting it on Amazon, but you're getting a signed copy. And it supports the Texas Rangers Heritage Center. There you All the proceeds do. They don't, they don't go to me. They go to the Heritage Center. So. And speaking of the Texas Ranger Heritage Center, you are the executive director. What is the Heritage Center all about? So the Texas Rangers Heritage Center is a project of the former Texas Rangers Association and Foundation. And those groups are exactly what they sound like. They're, they, they formed in 1897. The former Texas Rangers Association is made up of former Rangers and their descendants. So if you're a descended, lineal, lineal descendants, of, that means a direct descendant of a Texas Ranger, um, then you can join. And that goes all the way back. They recognize all the way back to the Mexican colonial period. So, um, so there's that. And there is, um, um, and, and so, and then the foundation is the 501c3 arm. So if you're not a descendant 
but you want to support the Heritage Center, you can join the foundation to start with. And they have, they, you, you join at a, at a rank level, just like the Rangers, private, uh, you know, sergeant, lieutenant, captain, all the way up to major. And those start out at 500 and end up at 5,000. And you can start, you can join as a private, and then you can, you know, down the line, you can promote by, you know, contributing additional amounts. And those support the operations of the foundation as we built the Heritage Center. Um, the Heritage Center itself is, the, the former Texas Rangers Association had the original Texas Rangers Museum on the grounds of the Witte in what's known as Memorial Hall uh, since 1936. But uh, they outgrew that facility, started a partnership with the uh, Buckhorn in downtown San Antonio and, and moved uh, some of their uh, exhibits, they have exhibits there. Um, and so that's the original Texas Ranger Museum at the Buckhorn in San Antonio. But their long-term plan uh, was always to develop a full-scale Texas Rangers History Education Center. In fact, that's what they originally called it, the Texas Rangers History and Education Center. But for branding purposes, that's a little clunky and, 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 and wordy. And so they ended up uh, evolving to, to the Texas Rangers Heritage Center. And it will be a state-of-the-art uh, modern museum that will tell a, you know, the linear chronological narrative history of the Texas Rangers from the Spanish period of the Spanish frontier, even giving a little, you know, uh, pre-Columbian history of Texas uh, at the start, all the way up to the modern day. And, um, and it'll be an inclusive history. You know, I say, you know, one of the myths of the Texas Rangers is that it's a strictly Anglo or originally Anglo institution. Couldn't be further from the truth. Um, uh, there were, you know, from the beginning, you know, even once again, uh, Antonio Perez, Salvador Flores, these are Ranger captains that served alongside the more famous, uh, but, but, but no more uh, brave or, 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 or successful uh, Jaxie Hayes. You know, Jaxie Hayes is the famous one from that period because he first brought in the use of the revolving pistol, the Patterson. But these guys were right alongside him there. In fact, Jaxie Hayes originally served in a Tejano Ranger company and under a Tejano Ranger commander. That's how he learned to be a Ranger, not from Anglos. He learned from Tejanos. And then he also served alongside Indians. Tonkawas and Apaches in particular served as Rangers and Ranger commanders during the Republic. Uh, and so um, it, it'll tell all those stories. It'll also um, acknowledge that there are different perspectives, especially in regards to certain events in Ranger history and in regards to how those were handled. And it'll acknowledge that not every Ranger that has, has served has done so in accordance with the um, the ideals, which you know they do like to promote, um, you know, in the in the the the, and so we talk about that being the model Texas Ranger rather than a strictly historical uh, reality. Because yeah, they're you know like under Ma Ferguson, uh, some of the yeah they they are definitely they appointed some of the worst Rangers in Ranger history uh, who did some very terrible things. So um, we acknowledge all of that. All right, Dr. Jody. Hey, man, thanks again for being on the show. This is a great conversation. Um, and the book is insane. I'm just going to go ahead and put that out there. If I could, if I could label it as something, it's insane. But it's also, um, I don't want to go so far as heartwarming, but it's very encouraging that even if you've got a ton of corruption going on, somebody can come in there and, and clean house. Um, and so it's a, it's a real uplifting story as well, but thanks again, man, for bringing all of this information, all this knowledge, 
uh, and bringing it on to our show. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Happy to be here again. You know, great to uh, to make some new friends with you guys and and to uh, participate here as you you know share history uh, with uh, with the world over the internet. Got it, man. Appreciate it. Well, thanks again, Dr. Jody Edward, again for joining us. That was a great conversation. What'd you think about it, man? I, you powered through, by the way. Uh, yes. Allergies going nuts. Uh, you know, that Zyrtec? that Zyrtec is hitting me. <laughs> that Zyrtec is hitting me right now. You know, uh, but you know what? It was worth it because I wanted to hear what Dr. Jody Edward again had to say. You better believe it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to make sure I used all three words because you know there's other people with similar names, but. What, four? Four doctor. people? Did I say doctor? Well, you said three. All oh, three words. Doctor, Jody Edward Gen. I know, you said doctor, but you Did said it? three words. And that's four <sighs> if you add All right. a doctor. Well, I'm Look, sure. Look, I'm no mathematician, but you know, this reminds I do me, know how to count up to four. This reminds me of the uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail where they were throwing the ha holy hand grenade. One, two, four, three, sir. <laughs> Watch. Don't more. remember that scene. The holy hand grenade of Antioch when they blew up the little rabbit. Anyway. Uh, okay, yeah. But no, but see, yeah, I am on Zyrtec. I, I took my, uh, I took my temperatures, so no, I am not COVID. I'm not, uh, no cold. It's the allergies. Yeah. yeah. Ragweed, pollen, whatever yeah. the hell's floating. Just can't taste or smell. No, anymore. I can taste and smell. I can smell you. Trust me. Believe yeah, me. That's, I forgot uh, to put deodorant on. That's, that's uh, on me. Nothing to brag about. But, no, it's uh, not. But no, but, Musty. Uh, but it was it was worth coming out here and and listening to him. Um, I, I've always been fascinated with the Texas Rangers. Yeah. Um, and this is prior to the uh, whole Chuck Norris thing, so you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you look great. <laughs> you look like you're on death's door. Well, so I, I just want better than I him. want everyone to know that I do notice. How, how rough you look, and yet you gathered enough strength and power, motivation, determination, perseverance to come out here and, and do the show. So I thank you, sir. And speaking of perseverance, let's, uh, let's end on a little word of perseverance. Nehemiah 4 and 14, as we always do, we like to end on a scripture. Nehemiah 4, 14 says this, because we're talking about his book, you know, the East Texas Troubles, how people were freaking scared out of their minds just walking down in the street you know downtown or whatever because people just you know these the mcclanahan burleson game was just killing everybody right yeah. you ever seen that uh that clip of the guy he's like hide your wife hide your kids hide your husband because they reaping everybody up in here no you ever seen that it's was that yeah. blazing saddles nope it, it's an actual uh. news report i can't oh. believe they've turned it into like a music video and everything it's pretty comical Anyways, they're killing everybody up in there. Um, yeah. And this is San, San Augustine, Texas, a little town. Anyways, people were freaking, you know, scared out of their mind. Kind of the Rangers the, weren't helping yeah. because Ma and Paul Ferguson was where they were doing their thing. So they, they were like people who had this power and the law behind them, but yeah. they were actually not lawful people. Right. You know, they were just doing their own thing. This scripture sort of uh, fits in with uh, what we're talking about. It says, when I saw their fear... I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. It almost feels yeah. like, yeah. you know. 
you know, Shakespearean, the whole, yeah, the whole William Wallace type of film. The whole St. Augustine also reminds me of uh, Tombstone, where, yeah. I bought, where I bought my hat. Um, throw that in there. But yeah. yeah, but you know, you had the the Clantons and the McClarys and and uh, Johnny Ringo and yeah. you know Curly Bill Brocious, mm -hmm. all those guys um, running things. And you had you know the sheriff of uh, Tombstone was friends of theirs. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know. I, they should that's, make a movie. That's what you look like. Who? Not who. You look like somebody just walked over your grave. Oh, you're funny. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. All right. right, ladies and gentlemen, that brings our show to an end. Where can people find us, my good friend? Well, they can find us on Facebook, on YouTube. Go to YouTube, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. Uh, Instagram, he's got his Thursday Night Live chats. Actually, that is now going to be moving starting in May. It's going to be moving to, you guessed it, YouTube. I didn't guess. Oh, yeah, that's right. YouTube. Oh, it's going to YouTube. Yeah. All right. Going to be doing streaming on YouTube. Yeah. Very good. All right. Yeah. I'm happy to hear that. Okay, well, there you go. And we have our very own website, www.thesonsofhistory.com. You can find anything you want on there. That's right. New merchandise is on there. Uh, speaking of, you can get our coffee mugs. So the come and take it coffee mugs. Uh, yeah, I got you. I right. got you. Come and take it. It's uh, logo on the front now. Right now, it's the uh, all-color logo. Uh, so it's not the blacked-out version. That was strictly for our event. Uh, but we've got the Texas One Not Stolen t-shirt. We've got the History Comes in Threes. We've also got our Campobella Collection t-shirt up there as well. So go check it out. Yeah. All right. I have and a co-worker. He bought a bunch of stuff. Yeah. That's freaking awesome. Thank you yeah. very much. Same as Ozzy. Ozzy. Ozzy Toredo. That's right. Good yeah. man. Um, and thank you everyone who came out to our event and purchase merchandise, purchase tickets, uh, watched in person or online. You guys are awesome. Thank you so much. You've made our event a big success for our very first one. And uh, we're going to have another event coming up soon because we've got a documentary on George Khalil who yep. recently passed away, the World War II veteran. He recently passed away. You just went to his funeral. Uh, I just went to his funeral. Yeah. yeah. Sweet man, brave man, very kind man, 100 years old. It was two months away from turning 101. Wow. Well, yeah. What did he die of? He just died. His heart, he was just, that was it. Wow. Expiration, you know? Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah. it's crazy. Survived D-Day, survived uh, heart issues, and then survived COVID, you know, a number of months back. Mm -hmm. uh, was two months out of the hospital or something, or three weeks out of the hospital, and, you know, was doing fine. I saw him after he had gotten gotten out. He was fine, uh, full of full of life, but 100 years old. So, hmm. yeah. so, um, and our thoughts and prayers are with the family. You realize so. he was born when uh, Woodrow Wilson was president? He was born in 1920? This is true. Because yeah. he was born in 1901, I think. No. 1900 or 1901, yeah. No. He couldn't have been. Yeah. That'd make him 120. <laughs> <laughs> He yeah, was no, no. Woodrow Wilson wasn't president. Nineteen twenty, he was. Was he? Yeah, yeah. Warren G. Harding was elected in nineteen twenty. Oh, took the eight. office in nineteen twenty-one. He came in in thirteen, right? That's Correct. right. Yeah, yeah, he came in in thirteen, so two terms. Yeah, yeah nineteen twelve. Uh, came in in yeah. nineteen thirteen. So and he, he was left born in nineteen hundred. Right? No, nineteen twenty. <laughs> He's born in nineteen twenty. You know what it is? It throws me off that he was twenty-one <laughs> years old when he entered into. Uh, the army. Okay. 
But if you if he was going to turn 101 this year, then that means he was born in 1920. Yeah. So, you sure? Yes. You know my math is always really, really bad. Especially when we're on camera. Well, math and, I mean, it's not, math it's and, not that. Math and history are my... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> All right, ladies and gentlemen, that's it for the show. We hope that you enjoyed it. And go purchase uh, Dr. Jody Edward Ginn's book, East Texas Troubles. We will talk to you all later.